This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Helena, aka No Justice MTG, on YouTube and Twitch. Thank you for joining us. As always, pleasure to be here. Looking forward to the show. Going to be a pretty spicy one. It's going to be a busy one, I have to say. MPs are currently debating three different motions on a ceasefire in Gaza. We'll have the results um, for you towards the end of the show. There's also been some sort of chicanery um, in, in the House of Commons. Um, you'll, you'll get to see how outraged or otherwise we are about that. I have to say, when it comes to sort of parliamentary procedure, I'm often just a bit perplexed. Um, but in this case, it does seem somewhat egregious. Um, Also on the show, we will be um, looking at the reality on the ground for Palestinians in Gaza, while of course MPs debate which flavour of ceasefire they think is most appropriate. Um, Piers Morgan um, has hosted another debate with Norman Finkelstein. It's well worth checking out. We'll have some key clips from that. And the Ministry of Defence have had to admit a test firing of a Trident missile went completely wrong. It apparently plopped into the ocean. It's the second time in a row uh, that a test launch of a nuclear missile has gone wrong. Um, so that does put into question how deterrenty our deterrent might be. I'm not sure what the word should have been there. First story. MPs are debating an SNP motion calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. It's the second time the SNP has brought a ceasefire motion to the House of Commons. Last time around, this motion fell, but it caused a lot of problems for the Labour leader. Starmer had whipped his MPs to abstain, essentially backing the continuation of Israel's genocidal war. This time, Starmer chose a slightly different strategy, so he's still whipping his MPs to abstain on the SNP motion, But he's also put forward a Labour amendment, um, which Labour MPs would be whipped to vote for. Now, the Labour motion also calls for a ceasefire, but it adds a bunch of conditions that essentially um, weaken the impactfulness of the motion. So we call for a ceasefire if X, Y, Z, yada, 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 it becomes a bit mushy. Lisa Nandy explained Labour's thinking. Can you just explain why you can't back what the SNP are very clearly calling for? which is an immediate ceasefire? Well, on the question of immediate ceasefire, there is no difference. We have used the language of our international Five Eyes partners, Australia, Canada and New Zealand, who over the last few days have called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We think that adds weight to those calls that the world is speaking with one voice as the ground invasion of Rafa is imminent and that it must be averted. But there are significant differences between our proposition and the SNP's. We are clear that any ceasefire must, by definition, be two-sided, that Israel can't be expected to lay down its weapons if Hamas doesn't observe the terms of that ceasefire. The SNP motion is vague, whether deliberately or otherwise, on that point, and we think it's extremely important that we send that message. If something is the case by definition, you probably don't need to put forward an alternative motion. They've called for an immediate ceasefire. What's the definition of a ceasefire? Both sides cease fighting. Oh, well, they didn't, they didn't lay out the full definition of the meaning of the word, so our motion's special because we lay out the definition. Now, that's not actually the difference, right, between the SNP's motion and the Labour Party motion. What the Labour Party motion says is, we would like an immediate ceasefire, but we also recognise that Israel need to be certain that October the 7th can never happen again. 
Now, I don't want something like October the 7th to happen again, but when the Israeli government says that that's their aim, what they mean is the complete destruction of Hamas. They mean the complete flattening of Gaza. So if you're saying, yes, we support a ceasefire so long as um, you can be sure that there will never be another terrorist attack on Israeli soil, then Netanyahu will say, yeah, sure, we're going to keep going because we haven't made sure yet. Right? So the more conditions you add to the ceasefire, the less meaning it has. What I think you should say is stop all the fighting right now, and then you can work out the rest afterwards. Right? Israel using total war on a population of 2 million people is not a legitimate negotiating tactic when it comes to working out peace terms. And the Tories have also put forward an amendment which was even weaker than the Labour one. They want a humanitarian pause, so not even a, a lasting ceasefire, just a little bit of time to get some more water bottles in. Um, those are then the party's positions. Um, and as I warned you, there has been some procedural drama in the House of Commons today. That's because according to parliamentary convention, only one amendment should normally be debated to an opposition day motion. The Speaker is expected to choose the government's. Now, that would have been difficult for the Labour Party because it would have led to a situation where Labour MPs would have had a choice between two different positions. Vote for the SNP or vote for the Tories or vote for neither of them. Um, he wanted to sort of say, you know, you can still vote for a ceasefire, just vote for the Labour version, the weaker version. Um, so that put Keir Starmer in a difficult situation, but it turned out okay for the guy because Lindsay Hoyle uh, made a surprise announcement in the Commons earlier. I think it's important on this occasion that the House is able to consider the widest possible range of options. I have therefore decided to select the amendments both in the name of the Prime Minister and in the name of the Leader of the Opposition. I should tell the House that in my opinion, the operation of Standing Order Number 31, which comes the way amendments to the opposition day motions are dealt with, reflects an outdated approach. Which... <laughs> which restricts, which restricts order. That was Parliament reacting to what looks like a blatant attempt by the Speaker Lindsay Hoyle to fix the debate in favour of Labour. And there was going to be a difficult potential rebellion for Keir Starmer. And suddenly, he's decided that it's time to update conventions. They're out of date. It just so happens um, that we're going to update them on the day and that it's most helpful for Keir Starmer with no prior warning. I don't think Lindsay Hoyle is on record of uh, as saying these conventions were out of date before. Um, Newsnight's political editor, Nicholas Watt, um, seems to have suggested that there might have been um, some dark forces at work. So he tweets, Senior Labour figures tell me Common Speaker was left in no doubt that Labour would bring him down after the general election unless he called Labour's Gaza Amendment. The message was, you will need our votes to be re-elected as Speaker after election with strong indications this would not be forthcoming if he failed to call the Labour Amendment. Now apparently there are moves afoot by the Conservatives and the SNP to try and oust Lindsay Hoyle as Speaker. It might be the case that an early day motion will be put forward in sort of coming days, a motion of no confidence in him. Um, Penny Morden currently now speaking to uh, Parliament, apparently sort of castigating the Commons Speaker for going against convention in a way that quite blatantly favours the Labour Party. Helena, 
I don't normally talk about parliamentary procedure, but lots of people are very annoyed about this. And I think they probably do have some right to be. Um, what's your position? I mean, pardon my French, but I just couldn't give two shits about parliamentary procedure. I think we should honestly take things on their utility rather than essentially going on gentlemen's agreements. I think it's one of the big problems we have with our politics is based upon gentlemen's agreements, quote unquote. And I don't really hold a candle to that kind of stuff. But I will say, first of all, I actually think that Lindsay Hall is right to allow the Labour amendment to go through in the abstract, in the, I think, his summary of saying that having all people's voices heard on a contentious issue is indeed important. And in the long and short, I don't think that it will make much difference, as I do not expect the Labour amendment to pass, because the government are very likely to, to vote against it, to try and corner Labour into some kind of rebellion over the SNP motion. And by there being a concerted effort from both SNP and the Tories to potentially look at outing, uh, ousting Lindsay Hoyle just shows that there is some weight to the claims that the SNP are playing politics with this, trying to make sure they're in a position where they can say they vote for a ceasefire and the Labour Party didn't, so that they can be able to use that as a campaign tactic. However, however, on top of all of this, there is one thing for the Labour Party going up to the Speaker and politely asking if they can break convention to be able to have this scene. It's quite another. It's absolutely quite another to use your position as the assumed incoming government to hold the Speaker essentially to ransom, to force through a breaking with parliamentary procedure to have the amendment heard that you want to heard. Essentially, again, for the similar kind of political reasons as the SNP, with the expectation that he might lose his position as the Speaker after you get into government. What an absolutely horrendous position for them to be in. And if these allegations that have been said by senior sources, quote unquote, are true, it's utterly an un un unreal situation for the Labour Party to be doing this. What, what is this? What, if, if the centrist commentators who are turning a blind eye to this, if Boris Johnson had done this, if Boris Johnson had used his position as a politician, as a high as a high level politician, to try and railroad another member of the house into doing something that they might not necessarily have done or against procedure. They would have been outraged. They would call it blackmail, they call it thuggery. Owen Jones was speaking about this today. And he's absolutely right to criticize on that because there's no standard that they hold. It's all team sports to these people rather than there being, you know, a moral value that we place on it and then reacting accordingly based upon that utility, which is the position that I take. I said that I don't care about parliamentary procedure, but I'm actually going to now take the precise opposite position to you uh, because it, it turns out that actually maybe I do care about this one. I, I'm not that fussed about uh, the sort of the element of this of sort of going up to the speaker and saying, oh, do us a favor and then we'll vote for you after the election. To me, that's the sort of procedural aspect that, you know, I, I'm not that fussed about. The thing I am fussed about is I think that this was an incredibly cynical move by the Labour Party to put forward their own weaker amendment because essentially, you know, obviously everyone's, in politics is playing politics to some degree. You know, I, I don't think any of these people are just acting out of the, the purity of their heart. But it is the case that the SNP has as its leader a man whose family um, have been based in Gaza, whose mother-in-law was working in, in Gaza when the war started. He lost contact with her for a while. So there are, there are plenty of reasons for the SNP to really care about this. And, you know, you might say the SNP were trying to cause problems for Keir Starmer, but they were only trying to cause problems to the extent that they were saying, do you or do you not support a ceasefire in Gaza. And the SNP motion, to me, was genuinely calling for a ceasefire because it was saying, we want a ceasefire, no ifs, no buts. The Labour amendment gives MPs a chance to tell their constituents they voted for a ceasefire when, in fact, they did no such thing. 
because they voted for a ceasefire if X, if Y, the X being if Hamas released all other hostages, if um, Israelis can be sure that no terrorist attack could ever happen again, right? These are conditions which actually Israel has kind of agreed to before. Um, and uh, what do I mean when I say that? So it is the case that Hamas have said they will have a ceasefire if Israel agree to sort of a, a, a permanent ceasefire and then they will release um, the hostages sort of in a staggered way. Um, what, the, what, what the Israeli side um, have said um, is that what they want to do is have uh, an immediate ceasefire, Hamas release all the hostages, and then they go back to fighting in six weeks' time. So, you know, you, you really have to take a position between those two arguments. Do you think um, that there should be a ceasefire only if all of Israel's demands are met? And, you know, to me, the Labour Party moment isn't too far away from that. Um, we've got a, a parliamentary update for you. Uh, so the government have withdrawn their amendment, um, but, you know, I think their amendment was going to pass anyway. So this is still just the same issue between the Labour Party and, and the SNP. Um, I think the government, the only reason they put forward their amendment was so that Labour couldn't put forward an amendment. So obviously, you know, the SNP put forward, I'm going to try and make sense of this for myself as well as you. Um, it's opposition day. So the SNP put forward their motion. It was their day. You know, so, so one day it's Labour's, the other days it's the SNP, whatever. They put forward their, their motion. Um, the Tories quite wanted it to be just SNP, yes or no. Um, so they put forward an amendment to sort of take up that slot. Um, and then um, what's happened is that the Speaker said, oh, actually, even though the Tories have put forward one, Labour can still have one, um, which means that the Tory one is completely pointless. The Tories are only putting forward their amendment to try and stop Labour putting forward theirs. Because the convention is that if the government put forward an amendment on the opposition day, no one else can. They didn't want Labour to put forward an amendment. They wanted an up-down vote to cause Keir Starmer problems. So now we just, you know, we're back to a situation um, where there isn't this sort of pointless vote at the end, which was the government amendments, SNP versus Labour, in terms of what people can vote for. Um, so on to the debate in the Commons today. It was opened by Brendan O'Hara, who put the SNP's motion to the House. The war in Gaza is one of the great defining moments of our time. Yet until today, this House has not been given the opportunity to debate both the unfolding human catastrophe and the wider implications for regional and global stability. Nor have we had the opportunity to debate the urgent and pressing need for an immediate ceasefire as an essential first step to finding a lasting and just peace. Mr Speaker, no one would deny that Israel has the right to defend itself. Every country has that right. What no country has the right to do, however, is to lay siege to a civilian population, carpet bomb densely inhabited areas, drive people from their homes, erase an entire civilian infrastructure and impose a collective punishment involving the cutting off of water, electricity, food and medicine from civilians. So Labour had briefed actually that their big problem with the SNP's motion was that it referenced collective punishment. So presumably for the expert human rights lawyer Sir Keir Starmer, killing 12,000 kids in response to a terror attack doesn't fit the definition. This is how David Lammy introduced Labour's motion in the Commons today. There are times when this House can come together with clarity and a unity of purpose. And I hope that this can be one of those moments. 
Mr Speaker, it's with pain and sadness that this House gathers here today. The pain and sadness of war that has gone on too long. It's now 137 days since the appalling 7th of October massacre. And since that day, the killing has gone on. Flattened cities, ransacked kibbutzim, teeming refugee camps, hostages in chains. We've seen it all on our TV screens and phone screens. Mr Speaker, a ground offensive in Rafa would be a humanitarian disaster, yeah. Yeah. a moral catastrophe and a strategic mistake. Yeah. It must not happen. Again, this is, you know, the Labour Party only saying whatever the, the White House has said. So the White House is saying that they don't want Israel to, to go into Rafa. Now the Labour Party feel free um, to say that they don't want um, Israel to go into Rafa. Um, as I say, it's a bit sort of bare minimum for me. That was Lammy's argument put forward in sort of flowery language, although you will notice that it always had to be 50-50. You know, oh, there's this going on in Gaza, this happened to Israel. There's this going on in Gaza, this is happening to the hostages. And what that forgets is that just over 1,000 Israelis were killed, 30,000 Palestinians have been killed, right? And Israel's genocidal war is still going on. Um, Lammy's justification for Labour's motion was slightly cruder the night before on Sky. I don't want to do anything in an election year in which the Labour Party might have the privilege of serving that cuts across our ability to do that. And if you look at the detail of that SNP motion, it's not balanced. And that is the problem as I see it with the okay. SNP motion. She just ended it, I don't want to do anything in an election year, which seems to be in the Labour position. I mean, I suppose why I care about the Labour Party's position on this is precisely because it is an election year, right? It, it might be the case that Labour are in government. Well, it, it will be the case that Labour are in government when this conflict is still going on, when the occupation of Palestine is continuing. But it might also be the case that this war on Gaza is continuing. So it really matters to me how Labour would use that influence. We have a seat. We have a permanent seat on the Security Council. Right? There's, there's loads of people on, on, on Twitter today, sort of mainstream journalists, like, who? this is so stupid. Who in the world cares what Parliament in the UK says? Well, we're a key backer to Israel. We've got one of only five permanent seats on the Security Council. The Labour Party, and this debate is mainly about the Labour Party, right? Um, the Labour Party are going to be the next, or very likely to be the next government, potentially this year. Of course it matters what they think. MPs can vote for more than one motion being debated today, and the SNP has already said they'll vote both for their motion and the Labour amendment. Um, asked about the prospect of Labour supporting the SNP motion, though, SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn said this. I similarly hope that when it comes to a vote on the SNP motion, which of course is indeed also in favour of an immediate ceasefire, but recognises the collective punishment of the Palestinian people, that the Labour Party will support us as well. The order of voting this evening, so it involves um, MPs voting on the Labour amendment. If Labour's amendment falls, as it likely will, um, then the next vote will be on the original SNP motion. The original SNP motion also isn't going to pass, um, you know, unless there's some sort of miracle. But the key issue with the SNP motion will be how many Labour rebels are there? How many people um, are willing to go against Keir Starmer and say, Labour's amendment wasn't good enough, we want to go for this stronger ceasefire motion. Helena, some people might think, you know, the differences between Labour and the SNP are just semantic. You know, people are dancing on the head of a pin. Um, 
you know, what do you make of it? Are you sympathetic to that argument? Not at all. I'm not sympathetic to that at all. I think what we've seen really and truly from statements from the Labour Party, in contrast with the parties in the UK that have been calling for ceasefires from a very, for a very long time, so the Green Party and the SNP, the big difference is condemnation of Israel. Obviously, we mentioned, of course, within what Stephen Flynn was talking about, specific references to collective punishment. Even when you look at the wording of the motions that have been tabled by both of these people, so the motion from the SNP and then the amendment from Labour, Labour say the things like, oh, well, the Operation Traffer is a strategic mistake. We it shouldn't happen. Whereas there is explicit condemnation of the acts engaged by Israel. Obviously, the potential invasion of Rafah would be condemned. And of course, they condemn the collective punishment to stop the collective punishment of the Palestinian people, which obviously doesn't just refer to a potential grand invasion of Rafah, but in, is if regarding the entirety of the operation today. As I said, they have been calling for a ceasefire for months at this point. And there's a reason for this. There's an explicit reason why there's such a hard line. There was a three-line whip against voting for the SNP motion specifically is because the Labour Party do not want to be seen to be criticising Israel, whether because they genuinely believe that Israel has done nothing wrong, whether they fear there might be backlash in the media for not being in lockstep with the government's position in terms of not wanting to have explicit criticisms of Israel, but it, that's been their position essentially since the start of the conflict, where there is always a statement about what Israel shouldn't do, but no discussions about what happens when they do do those things, or indeed on things that they have done that have been violations, say, for example, of international law, which they've continually said over and over and over again, all these things have to be done within international law. But unless you say when they actually do those things, such as indeed in collective punishment, which they have done since day one and have not stopped doing, then it's a kind of meaningless. And then on top of that, all of the things that you've said previously around, well, one of these sides wants an immediate ceasefire as a means with which that we can go through negotiations for there be a hostage deal for what releases on both sides. And then this more kind of wishy-washy idea of what we need to only have a ceasefire once it can be all of these different conditions have been met. But of course, unless you, if you wait time for those conditions to be met, how many Palestinians have to die? How many civilians have to die in the continual bombardment of, of the Gaza Strip until all of those different measures that you believe to be the yardstick for what constitutes enough of an agreement for a ceasefire to happen when this has already been something that's been proposed and rejected by Israel? at another speech from the Commons today. As I say, most of the focus is on the Labour Party because they are the party which is divided um, on these questions. The Conservative Party aren't particularly divided. Uh, they're not particularly interested in a ceasefire. The SNP aren't divided. They're all in favour of one. Um, there is, though, one Conservative who is breaking ranks. Mark Logan is MP for Bolton North East. We're MPs not to fix potholes. We're MPs not to follow up if our next door neighbour of the hedge is growing into my garden, that's not what we're here for. We're here to protect lives. And this is the opportunity today is to call for an immediate ceasefire. Yes, it may just be maybe signalling to an extent, but that signal has to be given to what we see as one of our close allies, Israel, in the region. That has to happen today because like in times gone by with the United States back 20 years ago with Iraq, we thought we were doing the good friend thing to go along with the United States. No, the better friend says, no, this must stop now. This must stop today. So a ceasefire must happen now. And I so no longer in good conscience can continue on backing in public uh, the line that we have taken on, on this side of, side of the house, re regrettably. That was Mark Logan speaking. And we are sort of waiting for the House to divide. They're having some sort of argy-bargy 
about the procedural issues we've been talking about. Lindsay Hoyle isn't there and some people are annoyed that sort of he's changed the, the rules and then, uh, I don't know, gone home, gone to the bar or something. He, maybe he feels the heat is, is too much to take. Um, we, of course, will be updating you the moment the house does divide. Helena, while we're waiting, um, are you surprised that we haven't seen more divisions within the Conservative Party? I mean, you know, there have historically been um, some uh, Conservative MPs who have been, you know, quite reasonable um, on the Palestine issue. I think Chris, Crispin Blunt is is one of them. There are a few others. Their names sort of do escape me. Um, but uh, I suppose, is it surprising to you that, you know, the Tories have managed to just sail through this without any divisions? Obviously, they've got loads of divisions on other issues, but not really on this one. I think it's mostly because the kind of Conservative MPs who would be the kind who would be supportive of the Palestinian cause, be a bit more reasonable on this issue. I mean, Alicia Kearns has been really good in her position as being the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and pressing upon the state of the Palestinian uh, people, with not just now, but also historically as well, and pressing David Cameron on whether or not he could admit that Gaza was indeed still occupied, which he couldn't even answer. There are plenty of people on those benches who would be sympathetic to the cause. But they're also the kind of section of the kind of one nation conservatives, the the wet Tories, for example, who are far less likely to break ranks. The most of the conservative infighting that we've kind of seen over the last however many years now of oh God, this, how long have long the psych Tory psychodrama has gone on for? The people who do the rebelling, the people who are the ones who break ranks, who try and railroad the leadership with these constant tablings of amendments, or whether they be uh, reneging on voting with the government to try and bring down whichever prime minister it might be, they've all been from the right of the party. They've all been the 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 Marc Francois of this world, who when it came to like Westminster agreement on on the Brexit deal. These are the kind of people who break ranks and try and use their positions to move the dial. Whereas the ONTs, they've far been far more likely to just go, well, we'll do our negotiating in the background. When it comes to the political theatre of parliamentary time, outside of you know, a couple of figures, it's very rare they actually use their position in parliament to be able to have leverage over the leadership other than doing it in the background. They're still having some argy-bargy in, in, in the Commons. We will keep you updated as it, as it goes on. Uh, as far as I understand it, Stephen Flynn, so he's the, the leader of the SNP in Westminster, um, he wants the SNP amendment to be voted on first um, because I think because that would sort of put maximum pressure on the Labour Party because the SNP, what they want is for the whole House to make this decision. Do they vote for the SNP's ceasefire motion or do they not? They're not particularly keen or the SNP aren't keen on sort of the Labour Party having this halfway House um, that I suppose they see as a get out for for MPs who they want to um, you know, put their cards on the table on this issue. Um, the SNP, uh, he's also said that the House should be suspended because the Speaker has gone AOL. To be honest, I find this whole thing ridiculous. You know, they stand up, oh, so outraged, procedures, Next story. While politicians in Britain debate the precise flavour of ceasefire they should call for, Palestinians in Gaza continue to endure a reality most of us find hard to imagine. In the past 24 hours, the Palestinian Health Ministry reports that at least 118 people have been killed in Gaza. At least six of those killed died after an airstrike hit a car in the city of Daya al-Bala. A witness reported that some of those killed were mechanics from a nearby repair shop. Missiles also struck a house in the nearby al-Nusayrat refugee camp. Twelve people were reportedly killed and dozens more injured. The injured were taken to the overwhelmed and barely functioning Al-Aqsa hospital. After months of fighting around the complex, most of the hospital's medical workers have already fled. 
Just last month, the WHO reported only five remained. The situation at the NASA hospital in Khan Yunis also remains dire. The Palestinian Red Crescent and the WHO have been evacuating critical patients from the medical complex, which was Gaza's last fully functioning hospital. That was until last week when the IDF shelled and then stormed it. Meanwhile, 1.5 million displaced Palestinians are still sheltering in Rafah, pressed against the Strip's southern border with Egypt and waiting in fear of Israel's impending ground operation. Most came to Rafah because Israel promised them safety there. They have found something else. Overnight, Israeli airstrikes on this Rafah home killed eight people, according to the health ministry. A neighbor said, quote, We were sleeping when we found rocks falling over us. Cement was falling. I found a young girl in the middle of the house. She had been martyred. The entire house got destroyed. It does not exist anymore. They targeted our neighbor's home. He was just a university professor. The continued military assault on Gaza comes at a time when starvation, dehydration and disease are threatening even more lives in the Strip, and especially younger lives. UNICEF has now warned of an explosion in preventable child deaths in Gaza. According to a joint assessment carried out by various UN agencies for children and health, at least 90% of children under five in Gaza are affected by one or more infectious diseases, and 70% had diarrhea in the two weeks prior to the assessment. That's 23 times higher than it was in 2022. And of course, diarrhea is often the first marker of dehydration and malnutrition amongst children. It can potentially um, be deadly um, if it leads to the worsening of those conditions. Um, The WHO's emergency director, Mike Ryan, said this, Hunger and disease are a deadly combination. Hungry, weakened, and deeply traumatized children are more likely to get sick, and children who are sick, especially with diarrhea, cannot absorb nutrients well. It's dangerous and tragic and happening before our eyes. The situation could be transformed by getting more humanitarian aid into the Strip. Israel has said that it has allowed thousands of trucks into Gaza since the war began, a figure that's disputed by Palestinians as well as international aid agencies. And now, a report by CNN reveals that even if trucks do get in, the IDF fires on them. Using UN reports, correspondence from the IDF and satellite imagery, CNN reconstructed one truck's fate. The truck set off as part of a UN-marked convoy of 10 up Al-Rashid Road in the early hours. It reached an IDF holding point at 4.15am. Stationary for over an hour, it was then hit at 5.35am. Fortunately, no one on board was killed. The UN says they were hit by Israeli naval gunfire and in satellite imagery taken just two hours after the attack, CNN identified ships that could only be Israeli naval boats. They've been deployed along the coast and are attacking Gaza from the west. We share with the Israeli army the coordinates of the the convoy and only when the Israeli army gives us the okay, the green light, uh, does UNRWA move. And the purpose of this deconfliction process is to make sure that aid convoys don't get hit. It's not the first time this has happened. Many other aid trucks have been hit since the beginning of this conflict. The UN says northern Gaza is still home to reported 300,000 civilians. UNRWA says half of its mission requests to the north have been denied since January. And since this latest attack, they have taken the painful decision to stop trying to deliver aid to the north at all. 
The situation in Gaza is deteriorating quickly, but one group of MPs who visited a humanitarian logistics hub in Egypt's Sinai Desert have now reported that it may be even worse than we realise. Chair of the International Development Committee, Sarah Champion, said this about their visit. Nothing that has been reported braces you for the true scale of the horror in Gaza. We're simply not getting accurate information about the levels of destruction and brutality. Listening to seasoned humanitarians tell us that what we've witnessed in Gaza makes it the worst disaster they've ever seen really brought home the savagery befalling civilians. Aid workers repeatedly questioned why international law wasn't being followed up or upheld in relation to civilians, humanitarians and medics. They also expressed a deep feeling of dread and inevitability of Israeli forces carrying out their threat to escalate the assault into Rafah. A senior aid worker described Rafah as water in the bottom of a glass, with the pressure getting more and more intense. Now, I'll say what sort of really struck out to me when it comes to that quote from Saria Champion. So she's a Labour MP, she's clearly sort of been to... Um, the region, very affected by it, sort of speaking to experts. So people who, you know, are much more up close to the reality of what's going on than you might hear in TV studios in this country. And what struck out to me is she she used the word savagery, but she's used that not in the context of the Hamas fighters in Israel, which is what we, we always hear about the barbarism of Hamas, the savagery of Hamas. And then we hear about the humanitarian uh, problems in Gaza. You know, one of them is this sort of, you're visualizing these people as, as, as monsters, as uncivilized, as, as barbarians. And Israeli violence always gets described in much more clinical, polite terms. It's almost accidental. Oh, it's the unfortunate consequences of war. It was, you know, very, I suppose, surprising the right word, notable, let's say, that someone who has been in the region has sort of shifted. You know, they're using these terms to describe what Israel is doing. They're not just selectively applying that um, to to a people who it's easier to other um, if you are you know a white British person or especially given that Israel are British allies and um, you know the Palestinians are not. Next story. Piers Morgan might no longer have his show on Talk TV, but like us, he's still keeping it going on YouTube, and he's had Norman Finkelstein back on. Uh, it was officially a debate between Norm and the right-wing Rabbi Shmuley, um, but the more interesting exchange was between Finkelstein and Morgan. Um, Piers Morgan asked Norm whether he believed Hamas should be out of power in Gaza. This is how Norman responded. Piers, there's a difference between whether or not Hamas stays in power and whether Hamas should be in power. So let me get into... St- Stays in power is a military question. Should be in power, well, let's look at it. I say if Hamas, which is responsible for the killings of 36 children on October 7th, should not stay in power, then you must certainly agree, peers, and I'm going to kindly ask you to please answer me. You must surely agree then that Israel, which has killed now approximately 12,000 children and is plausibly accused of having killed them in the course of a genocide. Now, I'm going to ask you, Piers, to what please What is your source for 12,000 children? Question. What's the source? Do, what is your source, please? Okay. What's your source? Well, it's the Palestinian Health Authority run by Hamas. We know that. Run by Hamas. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Answer Rabbi the question, Shmuley, you don't scholar. interrupt. This is actually an important question and an important moment in the debate. Continue, Norman Finkelstein. 
So I have to ask you, Piers, if you believe that Hamas should not stay into po- stay in power because it killed 36 children on October 7th, then you must surely agree several times, thousand times more emphatically that the Israeli government should not be in power because it killed 12,000 children, not, not as collateral damage, but plausibly, according to 15 of the 17 judges on the highest judicial body okay, in yeah, the world. Okay, you said that point. Okay, here's my answer. Plausibly, here's my plausibly, answer to you. Here's my answer. And a genocide. Here's my answer. You mm-hmm. haven't so far answered my question. If you do, I will give you an emphatic answer to yours. So let me just ask again, should Hamas stay in power? My answer is, if we apply one no, standard... No, no, that's not an answer. Across the board. No, that's not an answer. If we apply if we apply one standard across the board, I am perfectly happy to say Hamas should be removed from power if you agree that several thousand times yeah, you've made that point. more emphatically the Israeli government should be removed I from don't think- power. I'm not focusing on Rabbi Shmuley because he just talked complete nonsense. Um, Norman Finkelstein, though, they're very interesting. People always, you know, this is always getting put forward. Do you think Hamas should be out of power? I was like, well, I might have a personal preference, right? But, you know, it's not really up to me. And I think he's absolutely right to say, if you want Hamas out of power, you absolutely need Netanyahu out of power. As he said, they've killed shed loads more people, shed loads more children than Hamas. Who say Hamas killed 36 Israeli children, the Israeli military instructed um, by Netanyahu have killed 12,000, right? So the, these two numbers are, are not commensurable. And I suppose in terms of my analysis, right, and you know, this, some people might call this a bit liberal, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think sort of from the outside, you've got two somewhat rogue actors, essentially, right? You've got Hamas, who I think, you know, did commit some atrocities, on October the 7th. You've got the, the Israeli government who has no interest in peace and is committing atrocities day after day after day after day. And so to say, as sort of the Western powers keep doing, well, we need to support one of those rogue actors to take out the other rogue actor, seems odd to me. Why not come, say, look, we don't trust either of you guys. You need to come together and be a bit more reasonable than you have currently been. Right? That, that to me, would seem like a more reasonable approach to this than to say, oh yeah, Hamas, they're completely unreasonable, so let's arm Netanyahu, a, a complete extremist, to destroy them completely, because we can't have peace with Hamas. Well, if you can't have peace with Hamas, you can't have peace with Netanyahu. By the way, you can't have peace without Hamas. And I would say you probably can't have peace without Likud either, right? You, you, are, you have unsavory people in charge of both movements, and you can't just wish them away. Um, let's look at what happened next in that debate. I think there are two completely separate questions, and I would answer it like this. No, they're not. Well, I'm going to explain no, to you. What, I'm going to explain why I believe they are. Okay. They are because, I will listen. Because Israel, listen. Israel's response was a response to an appalling terror attack. I believed after October the 7th, Hamas rescinded any right to continue having any power over Gaza and should be removed. Mm. The only debate would then be how would that best be done? 
and I have serious question marks about Israel's response. In response to whether can the I, current... Can I, can I oh, hang on, hang on. Let me finish my sentence, please. And in, and in response Excuse to your me. question, Norma Finkelstein, about Israel's government, no, I do not believe they should continue, actually. I think this government has lost the, the uh, faith of its people. I think Netanyahu in particular has lost all confidence and popularity with the Israeli people who blame him for what happened on October the 7th. Uh, and so, no, I don't think they should stay in power, actually. I think both countries should have new, new leadership and new governments. That's my answer. There's an interesting answer because, you know, on the face of it, he's agreeing with what I just said. You know, Netanyahu and Hamas, you know, neither of them are particularly good partners for peace. But what was the reason he gave for both? So the Israelis, they have agency. The reason Netanyahu should stand down is because he's lost the support of the Israeli people who think he failed to protect them on October the 7th, right? They have all the agency. What's the reason Hamas should be destroyed? Because of what they did to Israelis, and therefore the Israeli army should get the chance to destroy them. So the people who have nothing to do with any of this discussion are the actual Palestinian people. The only people who, who Piers Morgan sees as having any agency in this situation. Yes, he can admit, he can agree um, that he, he doesn't think all Israelis are perfect, but they're a democracy. Netanyahu um, should be able to do what he wants unless he loses the support of the Israeli people. I thought the, the distinction there um, was really interesting, Helena. What did you make of, of that debate? I think that the, the big problem I have is we keep kind of laboring under this false premise, this false premise that military action, if continued, would eventually result in the removal of Hamas, which it won't. This has been admitted, essentially, and maybe behind closed doors, this is what it's been reported on in like the Israeli press, essentially, as well, is that the, the military aim of removing Hamas is essentially a non-starter. Shin Bet admit this, uh, at least in private. You know, there's been rumors in the foreign office in Israel that they don't think that they have the ability, on even long-term, to use mi their military capacity to essentially get Hamas out of power. And of course, there's a philosophical argument on top of that, that, well, you know, you may get rid of the name Hamas as an institution, but will you actually replace them with anything that's different ideologically after bombing an entire culture and landmass to smithereens? displacing two million people who are almost certainly being radicalized against you by every bomb that you've dropped. That also won't get the, the ideology that Hamas represents out of power either. Now, Osama Hamdan from the Hamas Politburo has been on record as saying that, that he doesn't want there to be any foreign involvement in the fate of what happens after the war potentially finishes, even if, if it does, at least in the short to medium term. And that can, decision can only be made by the Palestinian people. And I think that is at least somewhat true. I think that it has to be in the hands of Palestine to be able to decide their own future. And when, as we've seen from the electoral polling, both in Gaza and in the West Bank as well, Hamas increased their support by almost 20 points, even in the West Bank, in terms of how the Palestinian people view their own leadership. So first of all, this idea that we can get, just get rid of Hamas if we continue the war, that's not happening. They, some either themselves or somebody like them will therefore continue. And therefore, given that Hamas also admitted essentially that they knew that engaging what they did, the atrocities they committed on October the 7th, essentially means that they, cannot, they can no longer have unilateral power in Gaza. The only future that we can have really and truly, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of who indeed governs the Palestinian territories moving forward, is full multi-party elections, including East Jerusalem, and we have a proper 
bringing together of the whole Palestinian people to be able to decide what they want to do for themselves, rather than using essentially the military might of Israel in league with its Western accomplices like the United States to be able to decide the Palestinian people's fate for them, at the, at the, again, at the threat of ethnic cleansing, because that's what they've got at the moment. Uh, we've got some uh, confusing updates on what's going on in the House of Parliament. So the MPs are currently voting on whether to sit in private. So basically... The SNP and the Tories are just mounting some huge rebellion against the Speaker and saying, we're not going along with this. Um, so we will <laughs> we will keep you updated. I'm not sure how much you guys are going to care how this vote goes as to whether the House should sit in private. But if they do end up voting on something um, with some real-world implications, we will let you know. Next story. For the second time in a row... A test of Britain's nuclear deterrent has ended in a flop, or in this case, a plop. The failed test happened this January, and the Ministry of Defence had intended to keep it a secret. But the Sun newspaper got this scoop. So it says, Brit nuke sub-launch fails, says the headline, and they write, um, or they add, that the missile sank only yards from the submarine that launched it. And they also report this the crew on the nuclear sub perfectly completed their doomsday drill and the Trident II missile was propelled into the air by compressed gas in the launch tube. But its first stage boosters did not ignite and the 58-ton missile, fitted with dummy warheads, splashed into the ocean and sank. A source said, quote, It left the submarine, but it went plop right next to them. The sun provided this helpful visual representation of what went wrong. So as you can see, when the boosters fire, the missiles go up into the air... And when the boosters fail, the rocket falls into the sea. Uh, so fascinating stuff. A very useful visual representation from the sun. Um, Defence Secretary Grant Shapps was apparently in attendance on the HMS Vanguard. Um, so somewhat embarrassing for him. But the failure might not have been a complete surprise. The Guardian report this. Nuclear firing systems are complex and rarely tested and failures common. But it is the second time in a row a Trident missile tryout has gone wrong. In 2016, a missile that had been fired had to be destroyed after going off course. Instead of heading towards Africa, it ended up veering towards the United States. Now, why, why, why are you firing your test missiles towards Africa is the first question. But then also, if you're missing continent, if you've got to shoot this missile out of the air because it's picked the wrong goddamn continent... Um, I'm not sure how much faith we should have in Britain's nuclear deterrent. Of course, this is a weapon system which is costing us tens of billions of pounds. Um, the Ministry of Defence, for their part, say all is in order. This was the statement they gave to The Sun. HMS Vanguard and her crew have been proven fully capable of operating the UK's continuous at-sea deterrent, passing all tests during a recent demonstration and shakedown operation, a routine test to confirm that the submarine can return to service following deep maintenance work. The test has reaffirmed the effectiveness of the UK's nuclear deterrent, in which we have absolute confidence. During the test, an anomaly occurred. As a matter of national security, we cannot provide further information on this. However, we are confident that the anomaly was event-specific. And therefore, there are no implications for the reliability of the wider Trident missile systems and stockpile. The UK's nuclear deterrent remains safe, secure, and effective. Event-specific. No worries. I'm joined now by Anatole Levin, an expert in security policy based in Washington, D.C., who is director of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statescraft. To begin, um, the Ministry of Defence say this misfire was event-specific and wouldn't happen in an actual war. Um, does that sound credible to you? 
to me, it sounds like a joke, frankly. Um, what do you have tests for to make sure that the thing works? Uh, if it doesn't work in a test, what possible reason is there to think that it won't work in reality? Not, of course, that we want it to work in reality, because that would mean the end of the world. Uh, but uh, I, I am, I mean, I'm quite surprised that even the MOD, if I may say so, you know, would come out with a with a, an excuse quite that absurd. It doesn't work in the test situation, but it will work in the real situation. I, I can't think of any other aspect of life where anyone sort of would accept that that applies. Um, in terms of the nuclear deterrent, right, I suppose, you know, the reason this is being debated is people are saying, well, if, if, if our missiles don't work, we are less safe as a country. I mean, is there anything to that? What is the sort of current role of Britain's nuclear deterrent in terms of, of, of keeping um, Britain safe? Well, it's never been entirely clear. I mean, at, at the start and indeed thereafter, uh, and British prime ministers, including, you know, Macmillan, who... Uh, responsible for introducing the things, um, have always admitted quite candidly uh, that in private that it's largely about prestige. It is a, about you know Britain being seen to play the role of a great power on the world stage. Uh, Britain is a, a member of the UN Security Council for what that is worth. Uh, all the others have nuclear weapons, therefore Britain must have nuclear weapons. Uh, but at the same time, uh, in private, uh, ministers and officials have admitted that they can hardly imagine a situation in which Britain would use its nuclear weapons, except uh, in coordination with the United States. And of course, to a very great extent, these are in fact American weapons, um, dependent on American technology and possibly even in the end, American controlled. So, uh, the, the the circumstances in which, God forbid, they, they could be used would presumably be uh, a full-scale uh, Russian, in, in the further future, who knows, uh, attack on, on NATO. Uh, now, that is extremely unlikely, actually, whatever you may hear from, you know, Western militaries. Uh, Putin has never attacked or threatened to attack NATO. Um, he said Russia has no interest in that. And I mean, obviously, I mean, you can see the why not? I mean, A, although the Russian army has recovered, uh, it has still done very badly in Ukraine. You know, it's won two victories in the past uh, six months, but only, you know, two small towns after months and months of fighting and tens of thousands of casualties. You know, that does not indicate armed forces that are capable of attacking NATO. Uh, of course, we may stumble into a war, uh, but uh, I mean, the, the other thing, of course, is why um, these massively expensive submarine deterrents, uh, rather than, you know, like the old French force de frappe, uh, 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 you know, ba based on land. Well, the answer there is that, of course, that would bring home to the British uh, publics um, the fact that having these weapons also involves potentially very real dangers for them, for Britain. I suppose one might say that the nuclear deterrent or Britain having one, um, you know, could be helpful if Europe wants to sort of 
free themselves from, from the United States. I know sort of the possibility of the Trump presidency has made lots in Europe say uh, they need to have a bit more autonomy um, from the United States, not be completely reliant on their sort of defense umbrella. Um, is there anything to that? That raises an old debate, although I suppose one shouldn't really call it a debate because it's never been seriously uh, debated. Uh, but uh, for many years, there, you know, there has been this idea that whereas Britain simply does not have the resources to play the role of a great power on the world stage, and in any case only does so as an auxiliary to the United States and under US orders, Britain could contribute very significantly uh, to the the security of uh, a strategically autonomous Europe. But the problem is that the British security establishment has become absolutely, uh, totally dedicated to, um, well, they say alliance with the United States, but it is in fact dependence on the United States. And also, of course, this then you know, comes down to budgetary battles over who gets the money and for what weapons uh, within Britain. Uh, obviously, as a result of 9-11, um, uh, we, we went for this expeditionary capability and built those these uh, aircraft carriers, which are useless, of course, in a European war. Uh, and the situation has been made worse by, by Brexit um, because, uh, obviously, it would have been much easier in principle uh, for Britain to play this leading role in Europe uh, if it was still in the European Union. Uh, but as it is, we have sort of landed between two or even three stools. And that is one explanation you know, for why we have nuclear missiles that won't fire, aircraft carriers that break down, um, that do not have uh, British aircraft on them, uh, without escort vessels, uh, an army reduced to one deployable brigade. Uh, so, and, you know, for all the the talk of aid to Ukraine, which in financial terms has been major, uh, we could only give Ukraine 14 tanks, main battle tanks, because we only have 150 in the entire British army. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're ridiculously overstretched, um, but that is, you know, because uh, we have not been able to make up our mind between you know different strategic goals we've refused to prioritize uh, and so here we are you've alluded to it all, already really but sort of britain's idea of itself on the world stage is a bit of an anachronism we've got a, a permanent membership of the security council one of only five countries because we were one of the victors of the second world war and we were one of only nine um states that have a, a nuclear weapon but we're only two percent of the world's economy i mean what do you think the sort of future of British foreign policy looks like? Is there going to have to be a moment where we say, look, we're going to have to admit we are you know, way below a second tier power. Um, we're going to have to sort of accept the fact that it's yeah, anachronistic for us to have one of only five permanent seats on the Security Council. Um, obviously, we can't manage a, sort of a nuclear weapons system and an expeditionary um, military um, on our own. Sort of, do you see Britain moving in that direction or is that just you know, something that no politician will ever admit to? 
Well, I think it will come down to that in the end because we just will not be able to sustain it economically. And I mean, the other thing that I haven't mentioned is is that, of course, um, the breakdowns of our equipment, which is you know true in France as well, actually, is is uh, also due to the fact that we just don't have the industrial base anymore to produce you know large quantities of quality high tech weaponry, but. You know, I've had a, a fair amount to do with the British security establishment. Um, you know, the, in its wider ramifications, including the think tanks, and they will not. They they simply will not discuss uh, either um, some form of uh, independence from the United States, independent British policy, uh, or. Uh, abandoning these fantasies uh, of being a great power on the world stage, um, Iraq didn't uh, didn't teach them any different. Um, Afghanistan didn't treat, teach them any different. Perhaps Ukraine will, uh, but th this is you know a, a, a doctrine, a culture which permeates the whole of the British armed forces, security establishment, foreign office. And um, such cultures uh, are very hard to change without, I mean, true catastrophe. Um, I fear that that is where we are heading, but when we will reach that point, difficult to say. Anatole Lieben, thank you for joining me. Back to Parliament, um, not much to report really. They're now having a vote on whether to meet in private, which would mean that all the press have to get kicked out of the House of Commons um, and then it all happens in secret. I don't really understand it. I'm kind of refusing to understand it. Um, apparently that might make Lindsay Hoyle come back because he was the guy who made the controversial decision and then maybe went home. Uh, maybe he's going to get kicked out of his job as Speaker of the House, which he seems to enjoy, so maybe that'll be a shame for him. Um, Helena, any more thoughts on parliamentary care? Can you muster any more uh, sort of, I, I suppose, uh, emotional sincerity that I am managing um, when it comes to the, the disputes going on in the House of Commons currently? Well, I don't have any of my own emotional reaction, but what I will do is quote from Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Hussam Zomla, who says that tonight we have seen British politics at its worst and that MPs are trying to save themselves rather than trying to save an entire nation from genocide. And quite frankly, Hussam, I couldn't have put it better myself. Helena, thank you so much for um, ending the show with that particular quote. That was very powerful um, and I think really puts this all in perspective. Um, thank you so much for joining me tonight as ever. As always, pleasure to be here, especially for quite an interesting show today. And uh, thank you again for having me. Look forward to the next time. Quite an interesting show. They're all interesting, Helena. Come on. Uh, get your lines right. Uh, come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.